female owl was in the box with her young, and a southern flying squirrel appears in the opening, looking into the box, and it looks in and it sees the owls. You can just hear it saying, oh crap, this is the wrong place. And it disappears, it, like as fast as it could disappear, <laughs> it was gone. You are listening to Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, we've got your co-host, Billy Brown. Tony Crosdale. And we're here with... Rob Beauregard. Um, and we're and drinking beer. Cheers. On Rob Beauregard's deck. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Um, and we are... Regarding beer. Regarding <laughs> beers. And we're also... We're kind of staking out a screech owl nest box. Yeah. So this is a box that, uh, well, I put the, I put that box up on a tree the year I moved into um, the Winwood area, and a week after I put it up, I looked at the I have a cam there's a nest cam in it, and I, a week after I moved in, I looked and there was um, an owl had had come in to check it out, and so they they used it that winter, and we have a. We had the cams, we had live feeds, so we had the owl, the owl channel was broadcasting 24-7 on the TV in the house, <laughs> and they raised uh, two or three young that year, and so that was great fun, and then the next year, the squirrels moved into the box and filled it up with leaves, and then I moved it over onto the uh, 4x4 post that's on now, but didn't really pay attention and squirrels moved in and filled it up with leaves and just this um, late in the winter I went up and cleaned all the squirrel leaves out of it and I put aluminum flashing around the pole so squirrels can't get to it anymore and that's why I put it on the pole so that keep squirrels out of it and uh, but I thought it was so it was so late in the winter that I didn't think that the owls would use it this year then about 10 days ago I was out in the yard and I was down in the far corner of the yard in the morning and I flushed a bird out of the, um, the trees down there and it flew around and landed in some tall bushes over in the neighbor's yard and all oh, the chickadees and titmice started going crazy because it was the owl. So it was <laughs> that I figured, well, he's just roosting near here. And then later that afternoon, we were out in the yard, looked up, and Mrs. Screech Owl was looking out of the box at me. And so she's got babies in there. So it's great fun. So to set the scene, um, Rob lives in Wynwood, which is a, a near, so called an inner ring suburb of Philadelphia, um, and has got a. Like literally like five minutes from the city limits. Five minutes from the city. If that, right? And we're yeah. um, in his backyard, looks out on. Is there, what's the name of the stream? This is the West Branch of Indian Creek. All right, which is a tributary of... The Cobbs Creek. Near and dear to our hearts. <laughs> um, and uh, so we've got sort of a, a nice little suburban habitat back here. A lot of fun. And as we were saying earlier, we're joking, on the way up, we're like, can we count this owl as an urban owl? And, we're, and the thing we always talk about is Philly suburbs are other cities' residential <laughs> neighborhoods. Yes, like if this were Atlanta, this would just be in the city of Atlanta somewhere. Yeah, um, or Charlotte. 
Or Charlotte. It'd be similar to the, right? Would this be similar to the this is a residential neighborhood in Charlotte? This is identical to a Charlotte suburb. And where I studied Bardell's for ten years with four graduate students. So suburban Charlotte has an enormous population of Bardell's. Within ten miles of downtown Charlotte there are three hundred pairs of Bardell's nesting. And that's an estimate, but it's based on some pretty hard data. We, after our 10 years of studying the barred owls in suburban Charlotte, um, we know the habitat. They love to be near streams, just like Indian Creek here. They love to have big, tall trees, like the white oaks and sycamores in the yard here. Yeah. And it's a great oak tree. So they like a big, they like a canopy. They like, they like old growth forests. And that old growth forest is in quotes. Um, so th this, in fact, is, as far as the barred owl is concerned, this is old growth forest. So I was really surprised. When I brought came up here, I really expected to see barred owls nesting in this suburban Philadelphia habitat. And I'm still somewhat shocked that they're not. If you like the podcast and you're in Philadelphia, um, you don't just, you know, podcasting's an audio medium. Uh, but you can also join us in the flesh. Um, Tony and I on June 19th, in the morning of June 19th. We're discussing beer selection. That's fine. June, morning of June 19th. Um, Tony and I are going to be, uh, along with Robin, who's pitching in, Robin Frequent Podcasting guest host from the Tucani Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership, long name. Um, we're going to be doing a, a, a nature-focused ride sponsored by a local cycling magazine, Spoke, um, and Hidden City, which is a great Philadelphia website extraordinaire um, that pokes around the city and, and shows us neat things we never knew about Philadelphia. Um, and so we're going to be doing a, a, a ride through the, the Taconi Creek Park in Philadelphia, and then popping out and going urban after that, um, and hitting, crossing. So, but it is an urban park. It is an urban park, and we're going to leave the park, rather, and go into sort of streetscape from there, and talk about what we see in, in streetscape areas. We're going to go to the Northeast Wastewater Treatment Plant, where we'll see the, the resident rough-wing swallows, which I saw, or whatever swallows are there now, but it's a, a neat... It's most noted for a wintering population of swallows, but there should be some there still. And then we're going to end up on the river um, uh, looking at some ospreys and whatever else we can find on the Delaware River. So it's going to be neat, like like watershed park to streetscape near the channelized part of the, st the stream, um, and then down to the river, seeing sort of the whole progression throughout through, through North Philly. Um, and so we're going to be leading the ride. It's not going to be too hard. I figure it'll be 10, 15 miles, most general trend downhill, um, you know, street to street, so not moving, not riding too hard. And I'll be riding my Salsa Warbird and carrying my optics in my Revelate frame and handlebar bags. Those people better give us some money if you're dropping names like that. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking that that stuff is... Uh, um, it's some badass birding cycling stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, you know... I'm sure other companies make a similar bike. I think the Warbird is spectacular. But those bags, if you are into exploring places by a bike, um, these these bags made by Revelate that you can uh, 
attached to your handlebars or your seat. Like Crap. it really like dramatically increases the carrying capacity of your of your um, of of your bike. And uh, I had some beer overflow uh, right there. The foam <laughs> surprised me. Um, but carry on. Yeah, I was just saying it's it's really like I love my touring bike. Don't get me wrong, but it's like steel and has racks and it's, it's nice to be able to like take a much lighter bike out and still put some gear in it and, and like so cover some distance and not feel too like weighed down by your torrent by like your normal touring bike. At that time I was at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Okay. And I arrived there in um, 93 and settled in at, at, in the biology department as a visiting professor. And birds of prey have always been my passion. So I was I had a graduate student who was interested in doing some work with birds of prey and I had uh, there I was also affiliated with the, the Carolina Raptor Center which is a one of if not the one of the best rap, raptor rehabilitation centers in the country and I was on the board and participated with them, did a lot of things with them. So I, one of the things that I noticed that they were doing... <laughs> we're watching the Mallard oh. cruise past <laughs> the deck right now. <laughs> so they're going up, they go sit underneath the bird feeder. Hmm. And, and what, as the birds are feeding at the, feed, at, at the feeder and spilling stuff out, the Mallards are there just sort of vacuuming up everything. So they actually are handy because they keep the area underneath the bird feeder clean. So that keeps, <laughs> that keeps my wife happy. <laughs> so, so back to Charlotte. So my student wanted. So I'd watched, I noticed that the Raptor Center, when they brought orphaned owls in, would uh, and sometimes owls are really orphaned. Sometimes people find them on the ground. They think they're orphaned, but they're really not. So, I was concerned that when these owls, young owls, were being released by the Raptor Center, without any, without an allowance without being provisioned by their parents as they were learning how to hunt and that they wouldn't survive. So I thought, well, let, this is a chance to do an experiment and let's go and take some owls that are being released by the Raptor Center and we'll put radio tags on, on, some, on the birds that are being released and then we'll go find some, some owls that are being raised by their parents and we'll compare the survivorship of the two. So my first student started with barn owls, barn owls, not barn owls, <laughs> and um, much to my surprise, he found that he did 10, I think he did 10 uh, orphans that were released by the raptor center, just once they were fully feathered, they took them out in the wild and let them go, and said, you're on your own, and I thought those, that, I thought 80% of those birds would be dead within two weeks, and it turned out that they were fine. They somehow, they made it, and it, for as long as my student could follow those young, they did as well as the, the control group he did of young that were being followed. So that was a big surprise. And then, so we had a bunch of people building owl boxes because we were going to do barn owls, and then had this duh moment where I realized that barn owls are really rare around Charlotte, and barred owls. You can't swing a dead rat in suburban Charlotte without hitting a barn owl. <laughs> and I thought, well, why why are we thinking about studying barn owls when, there are, when we're surrounded by barred owls? So we switched the project 
to barred owls and then began looking at barred owls in suburban habitats. So from our viewers, our viewers, our listeners around the world who might not be familiar with these owls, barn owl is the labyrinth owl. It is the, the open country owl that often nests in human structures that's kind of pale in color. And it's a ghostly kind of Yeah, thing yeah. and has that heart-shaped face. And the barred owl is, um, what, is a, they're roughly the same size. Maybe barred owl's a little bit bigger. Yeah, and, a little bigger. Yeah, and they're gray and Compared to mottled. the size of like a pigeon or a chicken. I mean, they're like, barred owls are like two chickens. Okay. No, a barred owl would be a chicken. About a chicken? Yeah, it'd be two pigeons. Okay. Three pigeons, one chicken. There you go. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're dark. They, you know, um, they, don't, they have like the facial discs, not the heart-shaped face. And they don't have ear tufts, but they're, they're a big, chunky, a medium-sized, chunky owl, I'd say, right? And, so uh, when you, you mentioned that the, bar, the barn owls are ghostly, the reason that a lot of buildings are thought to be haunted is because barn owls make the weirdest, scariest noises you can imagine. <laughs> so if you come up to an old abandoned house or a barn, and you come up there, and if there's a, a nest of barn owls in there, you're going to hear some scary noises. <laughs> and you're going to say, that's not a bird. I don't know what that is. It, that has to be a ghost. So, so ghost-like is a very appropriate That. I'm playing the Sibley app, so might as well give them, we're using their sound file, might as well give them advertising. Yeah. The greatest um, bird app you can ever get, I highly recommend it. Okay. That's the barn owl, sounds like a Sounds murder. like a ghost. Sounds like you're <laughs> killing somebody, yeah. 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 <laughs> so if, so if, that, if, there, if you ever need an excuse to call some old abandoned house haunted, that's it. So the mystery to us was why we looked at these all these barn owls in Charlotte, and when you open up the book and you see what to read about barn owls, the sort of the first thing you read is that barn owls need large stands of old growth forest to survive. Well, here we are in, or here I was, <laughs> in suburban Charlotte in this kind of habitat here in Winwood. That's Lots a big, big white trees. oak tree we're looking at right that now. Is a, Giant white oak, tree. <laughs> um, and that's not that's not a small second one. <laughs> so, so what are all these birds? So the question was, and I sort of jokingly use this to introduce my when I'm giving a talk about our barred owl research. I say okay, I open up with, okay, barred owls supposedly need large stands of old growth forest to survive. Well, here they are, 300 pairs in a 10 mile radius within a 10 mile radius of downtown Charlotte, so either the book's wrong or barred owls can't read. <laughs> so that's my sort of humorous, I think, lead into the talk. And so as we work, as I work through the talk, I, I explain that, well, what do barred owls need? Why do they like old growth forest? They like old growth forest because they, they are a sit and wait predator. First of all, they need trees big enough to have cavities in them to nest in. Yeah. And they like an open understory because they're sit-and-wait predators. They'll go perch on a branch in the mid-story of the forest and just stand there. And they can turn their heads around. They can look at the entire world around them without moving. They can swing more than 360 degrees if you go sort of as far right as you can go to as far left as that can go. So they can see everything around them. They just sit there and wait. 
and then they see something start to move and then they watch it for a while and then they go down and grab it. So if you're in a young forest, not old growth, they, young forest, secondary growth forests tend to have a really dense understory. So if you're standing on a branch in the middle of that, looking down, all you see is dense brush growing up and you can't see the yep. forest floor. So you can't see your prey and you don't have um, holes big enough to nest in, so that kind of forest is no good for you. So big trees, open understory. What does an old suburban habitat have? It has big trees and it has, the understory is mowed lawns and azalea bushes. It doesn't get any more open than that. Yeah. So one of the really cool things we found out with the house finch. House finch. Okay. So one of the cool things we found out when we, we started studying the prey data, the prey habits, we put uh, we put up a bunch of nest boxes and we had 20 or 25 nest boxes that were used by barred owls each season and we put uh, video cameras in a bunch of them. And so what we saw was that the owls Barred owls were in the city or the suburbs. Were bringing in lots of birds. Over half of the prey items they were delivering to the nests were birds, and they were catching them at night when the birds were roosting in bushes. And they were. It was so open that the birds didn't really had a hard time hiding from the owls. Hmm. Uh, and that was so. We also studied owls, the country owls. And we found they weren't catching nearly as many birds as the as the barred owls in the city, or the burbs. Um, well, you're saying city and burbs. I mean, are I you mean, are you calling areas of the city limits of Charlotte suburbs that because they're not? Are, are these within the city limits of, of Charlotte or? Yeah, well, the city limits, the Charlotte city limits are kind of weird because they keep annexing the suburbs so they can mm. increase their tax base. So we had lots of, we had great fun with the video cameras that we put in the, in the barred owl nest boxes. And this is one of these, duh, another duh moment where we've been studying the barred owls and, and we had them in boxes for two or three years before I realized that we should be putting cameras in the boxes to record what was going on. So we finally figured that out and we got the technology all wired up. And um, so we had um, motion activated um, video recorders on 10 boxes a year pretty much some in the country some in the in the suburbs so we could compare the diets so it's great fun watching those and there and the cameras are in the back mounted in the back of the box we drill a hole in the back of the box so the camera is aimed right at the entrance that way when the male or female brings food in you see her coming straight at you and it lands it lands in the entrance to the box, you can you see whatever prey item is being delivered. So the one of the funnier moments of, of all of the thousands of hours of tape <laughs> we watched was a female owl was in the box with her young, and a southern flying squirrel appears in the opening, looking into the box, and it looks in and it sees the owls, and you can just say you can just hear it saying, "Oh crap, this is the wrong place." And it disappears. It like as fast as it could disappear, <laughs> it was gone. Because barred owls love to eat flying squirrels. And the I one thing about barred owls is that no one—they are very noisy. 
no one is surprised. You can never go up to a house and say, oh, did you know that there are barred owls nesting nearby? Because if they are around, everybody in the neighborhood knows about it. So one of the ways, we probably, half of the nests that we found in our studies in Charlotte, we would walk around with a boombox on our shoulder broadcasting barred owl vocalizations. They go, who cooked for you? Who cooked for you all? So we walk around, and that's one of there. That's the most common call. They've got another one that sounds like a monkey. It's called a monkey call. And I've had this. I was walking around a neighborhood with my boombox broadcasting this calls, looking, hoping that owls that were near nesting nearby would come respond to the call and, and come in. Then we know that there was a pair nesting near there. So... The little barred owl playlist was going through its cycle, and, and it got to the monkey call. And someone actually came up to me and, and said and asked me, "Did you lose your monkey?" <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so ha- so we would be wandering around the neighborhoods of suburban Charlotte with our boombox, broadcasting owl calls at dusk, hoping for to get a attract a, a breeding pair to respond, and so we would be able to locate their nest. And half of the nests that we found, someone would come up to us and say, oh, what are you doing? I said, well, we're looking for owls. I said, well, there's a pair nesting four blocks over that way, or there's a pair over that way. Nobody is surprised to hear that there are barred owls nesting in their neighborhood, which is a little bit... So when I got here and I said, well, there's no barred... There's hardly any barred owls nesting here. It's not that they're nesting and people don't know about it, because... They're nesting. Everybody in the neighborhood knows They're about it. They exactly make cryptic. so much noise. Shall we talk about peregrine falcons in yes. urban settings? Um, so the perhaps the most urban of all raptors is the peregrine. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, the way this has all worked out. And so the the quick background is is they were a casualty of DDT use in the mid 20th century. Um, and they were all, they were, you know, broadly wiped out. Um, and in PA we had, what, historically 40 odd pairs, I think, nesting mostly on the cliffs along the Susquehanna. In the Delaware, yeah. In the Delaware. Um, so they, they like cliffs to nest on. Um, and they were wiped out by DDT, they were reintroduced. And as they reintroduced them, uh, the, the, the folks reintroducing them discovered that cities make great cities look like cliff habitat um and so a ledge on a building um like city hall looks like a cliff and to backtrack a little bit um to bring great horned owls back into the story this is a nice little segue when they first started figured out what falconers uh, and i'm a falconer so ah. falcon when falconers so as they began to think all right we got to get falconers pretty much were the ones who said, hey, there are no more peregrines here because w- the pa- falconers were going to the cliffs where they used to take a young out to raise for, to fly for that year. Yeah. They couldn't find any. And so those falconers said, what's going on? Where are all the peregrines? And that, they were sort of the, one of the first ones to raise a flag and say, something's going on here. So falconers sort of raised the flag and then used, it was, so there were a few falconers, one named Bob Berry who used to, who lived in Chester, um, up in uh, Chester Springs here, who was my mentor as a falconer. He was the one who pioneered breeding, captive breeding of, of 
birds of prey, which was an essential part of bringing the peregrine back. So once they got over, they figured out how to breed them in captivity. Yeah. Then the question was, all right, let's get them back where they used to be. So they went out to the sites where they used to nest and started releasing the young there, and all the young got eaten by great horned owls. And they said, well, this is, this is no good. So let's go someplace where the great horned owls aren't. The first place they went was the Brigantine Marshes because they figured, all right, we can get... And this is in New Jersey. In New Jersey, out in Brigantine National Wildlife Refuge, right? Um, Legendary spot. So we can go out there, and they went out and they put a, a big sort of giant birdhouse out. On, they mounted it on telephone poles, and it was far enough away from the woods that great horned owls wouldn't get out there. So they released, they raised some peregrine, took some peregrines that had been born in captivity, put them in this big giant bird cage as they were a couple of weeks short of being able to fly. And the, the falcons looked out at the world through basically jail cell bars so they couldn't leave the nest before they were ready. And they were fed by the, hack, this is by the attendants at the site through a little tube in the back so they didn't imprint on people. And then when they were ready to fly, they opened up the doors and the birds flew around and they were continually being fed by their foster parents, the humans at this release site. And then they imprinted on that site. And one of the cool stories about this is the second year they went out to that release site at Brigantine, they had the young in the nest, the young were screaming, they were young falcons, just like young humans are always hungry. And so they were screaming for food. Out of the blue, an adult peregrine arrived, and it was one of the birds that they had raised the year before. And it made it through its migration cycle. It landed on top of the box where it was born. It heard these young falcons screaming for food underneath it. It took off. It flew out, and when they saw it climb up and up and up, it went over a turn colony, rolled over, went into a stoop, killed a turn, brought it back, and stuffed it through the bars and said, eat this and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> So and that, and that, fa that male falcon helped raise that brood of that yep, batch of young. So they realized, okay, this is cool. Let's do this where a city where great horned owls aren't. And the other place that great, owls, great horned owls aren't is cities. And cities are full of steel and glass cliffs. Well, cities isn't like downtown of cities. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously we have owl right. city limits. Yeah. Sure. I didn't know you were so... <laughs> Yeah, so that's yes, yeah, so that's that's a big deal. So now there are six, seven pairs of peregrines in the Philadelphia in Philadelphia. They're on yeah. the bridges. They're on in New York City. They're on every bridge going in and out of New York City. They used to nest up on the Palisades, which are the cliffs on the Hudson River, and they would basically they would sort of commute from the Palisades to the New York City to kill pigeons. The other thing about peregrines is, is that there's nothing they love to eat more than pigeons. That is like. It's a lot, when you're training a, a peregrine, uh, the pigeon meat is like a lollipop. <laughs> so, Do you have falcons now? I don't. I, okay. I did when I was a graduate, in college and graduate school. I used to train and, and hunt with oh. falcons. But they love pigeons. So the, the New York City peregrines used to commute from the, the, the Palisades to the city to <coughs> catch pigeons and they go back to their nests on the cliff. So they've Neat. since gotten in, they've gotten into nesting on, on skyscrapers. Cathedrals are great. 
big churches because they have lots of ledges and ornate little ledges where the where the peregrines can nest. Peregrines don't build their no falcon builds its own nest. They only let nest either in a cavity or on a on a ledge on a cliff where they'll sort of scrape out a depression. They don't carry sticks. Um, they are in fact just like their clo their close relatives, the parrots. This is a bizarre, but once you think about it, not so surprising result of DNA investigations of the familiar relations of birds. It turns out that falcons are not at all closely related to hawks. They look like hawks because of a process called convergent evolution. Falcons are in fact very closely related to parrots. That their closest relatives in the bird family tree are parrots. Parrots nest in cavities, pretty much like falcons do. Falcon beak, when you look at it closely, looks a lot like a peregrine, like a falcon beak. Did falcon I say that right? Like a parrot beak looks like a like a falcon beak. Falcons manipulate things with their beak more than their feet. So when you're trapping hawks, a hawk's weapon is its feet, not its beak. It kills with the. It kills with its feet. Yeah. It attacks with its feet. It protects itself with its feet. So if you if you've trapped a lot of hawks, you learn early on that if you get the legs, you're safe. Because if you put your finger right next to its beak, it's going to bite you. But a hawk won't, won't reach around aggressively with his beak to bite you. So if you're used to that, and I know I've done this, and a lot of people I know have had this experience, if you're used to catching hawks, grab the feet, you're fine. You grab your first falcon, you grab it, your feet, its feet, and the falcon says, well, so what? And it reaches down and just starts wailing on you with its beak because that's how a falcon kills its prey. falcon grabs its prey with its feet, holds it down with its feet, and then reaches in with its beak, and it grabs the neck of whatever it's caught, and it twists. It has a little notch in its upper mandible that fits in between the neck vertebrae, grabs the neck and twists, and that breaks the neck. So that's their, their weapon. Yeah. So it rip the head right off, right? right? Yeah, if it's a little bird. Yeah, well, I mean, I found like a head of a yellow cuckoo at downtown. Yeah. I assume it was a falcon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I seen lots of pigeon heads right. downtown yeah. Yeah, too. Yeah. So yeah, so so if there Next was a, if it was an aggressive twist, <laughs> the head may come off. Where do you see pigeon heads? I mean, I haven't seen one. I don't think it's been recording a podcast, but in okay. my life, I've noticed okay. a fair amount. So, so what we were doing, and and I'm we're going to explain a little bit about the process because the recording of Art actually while he was talking didn't come out so great um, well, was, we were, you'll hear some of it we were recording and Art McMorris who is um, with the Pennsylvania Game Commission and an old birding buddy of Tony um, or bird club buddy of Tony um, and a, a biologist was, was sort of narrating what he was doing but in the meantime it was in an echoey room and the, the falcons were screaming throughout the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's a tower of city hall it's in the city hall clock tower um, and so we, uh, I cut out some of the discussion, so we're going to talk a little bit right now about what they were actually doing. Um, so the, the, the peregrines, um, you know, they nest at City Hall. That's a lot of places, and he does this a lot of places, but at City Hall they turned it into a media event, a great PR event, frankly, um, where uh, they invite reporters and people like us um, to come in and help, uh, to watch, and in, in Tony's case, to, in my case once, to help out. I was the broom guy once. Um, and uh, when they're doing this, they're, they're taking the fledgling, or the, the, what are they at that point? They're hatchlings? What's the right term? Nestlings. Nestlings. 
taking the nestlings um, and they're putting unique identifying bands on their legs so that in the future they can trace these falcons back to City Hall where... They put a silver band, you know, with a number and then an information to call if you, if you actually achieve the bird in hand. And then they put in plastic bands that are color-coded with numbers that you can read with binoculars. Right. And then they're also doing things like giving them basically a health exam, uh, making seeing what kind of diseases they might have that they might be able to treat, seeing what kind of parasites they might have on them they can, that they do treat with... Um, they dust them with the powder that kills biting flies and lice, I guess, and, and yeah. sort of ecto... What I call ex, ectoparasites. Ectoparasites, yeah. Um, and... Uh, some other background the the falcons this is at about 21 days I guess their legs have reached the size they're going to get to so that they know the bands will fit okay um, and in another in another 20 days they'll be flying um, uh, and uh, so actually that's I think that's about the summary stuff I wanted to do now we're going to this is some last year I just went and did it again this year yeah but this time I went um, officially as a Philadelphia Parks and Rec employee. That's a good point. And I got to meet the mayor. I got to meet my, my boss. That is awesome. <laughs> the I, I'll say the the mayor shows up. This mayor shows. Mayor Kenny shows up. Yeah. I've seen him show up at a lot of stuff for my work. Um, and I I did the the Falcon thing a few years ago when I was writing for Grid. Um, and I I was happy. It was a lot of fun because because um, someone the, the game commission officer Jerry I think yeah. hadn't shown up. Um, or was caught in traffic on the School Hill Expressway. And so I was there, and they're like, we need someone to be the broom guy. And I was, like, looking around at all these birders who were there with their binoculars and their cameras, and they're, like, they're all, just, like, shook their heads. They didn't want to do it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we need someone to go out there with the broom and and guard the art as he goes into the box to take out the nestlings. And I'm like, I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, I was a broom. Me And I brought a – so I – It's a fun job. It's high school <laughs> – has a requirement the students have to do like an internship for two weeks and it was like and so you brought the intern out as a broom guy well art was like get in a broom that's awesome so it was me and an intern from high school uh and you know i got i was actually like looking at for some reason i don't know why i was looking at art first and uh and i should have been turned around and the falcon came and whacked me right in the hard hat it was (laughs) awesome they give you like a construction hat and a broom and god when you stand out there as the as the falcons come in and dive on the guys who are taking their babies out of their nests, you're supposed to block it with the broom. So if, in Osprey work, it's the aura guy. So you paddle, uh, <laughs> you paddle out there. You, you paddle out to with your canoe, and there's some <laughs> birds that are so aggressive that you need an oar. Somebody has to hold an oar over your head. So Google barred owl attacks, and you'll see me getting whacked by... I, when I was going into Bardell nests, I had to have a lacrosse helmet. <laughs> and I've got a picture. I put little owl decals, stickers on every time I got hit by an owl. I would get, I would get hit. There was, I got hit one time, seven times in one nest visit. Wow. And these, and this is a two-pound owl that's coming in. It's pissed off, and it, it, it hits you hard. And I went up a couple of times. When I first started this, I didn't know about needing helmets. So I, early on, I, I, it dawned on us that early on that the helmets were required. So my graduate students got me a, a little hard hat, like a construction hard hat, and they put a little target on the back of it. <laughs> well, that's no good because it sits up too high in your head, and the, and the back of your neck is just such a good target. So 
I got a, I found someone who had a lacrosse helmet and used that. And you really need the full face mask because the barn owls will come in. They'll never hit you if you're looking at them. So they'll either hit you in the back um, or they'll come at you and they'll keep the tree in between you and them until the last minute. And they'll swerve around a tree and get you sort of a rake. So I get hit on the shoulders a lot. Mm. And there's a famous wildlife photographer in Europe who lost an eye. Wow. Oh my God! To the European version of the barred owl because it whipped around the tree and got him in the eye. The tawny owl. Yeah. And uh, so he wrote a book, and his the name of his book was "An Eye for Birds." Wow. <laughs> uh, and and I'll just tawny owl real quick. We're gonna hit him later on in the season. When I talked to a birder in London about tawny, I think it was tawny owls eating exotic parakeets in London. Wow. Um, but we'll get to that later. So, this is Billy. I'm Tony. And so we're standing in the clock tower of City Hall, um, which is kind of like a bare brick interior with elevator, like old wire and metal elevator shaft in the middle. Um, we've got a, a folding table with a, like a like a moving padding blanket on top of it with some hard hats. And then pliers and a small taco box full of bird bands. And uh, with a whole lot of reporters, um, and we're getting ready for the Peregrine Banding here at City Hall. And there are, of course, Pennsylvania Game Commission um, officers, and the Peregrine Falcon coordinator for the state is here, who's also a member of my bird club, and an awesome <laughs> dude. There you go. The reason we're banding these is not because it's a hobby, and not because we like to pick up the birds and say, see how cute they are. The only reason we're doing this is to help the population to recover. The population is still recovering in the East after they were completely wiped out by EBT. And banding is our most important tool for being able to keep track of the population as it recovers. So by banning the birds and then identifying them later on, we can tell how long they live, we can find out where they go, we can find out uh, whether they nest, whether they nest successfully and expand the population. We can find out where the peregrine falcons that are nesting here today come from. Because of the bands, we know that the female here hatched on a tower at Tuckahoe River, New Jersey in 2006. So she, she's banded. She is banded. The male is also banded, uh, but that doesn't help us. He was banded, I banded him here in Philadelphia as an adult. He actually got trapped in a building downtown during nesting season. The building owner called us up, caught him, uh, examined him, made sure that he was healthy, he was uninjured. And before I released him, I banded him, and I didn't know where he came from. I didn't know that he was a nesting male here, but a few weeks later, when I came here to ban the young, I read his band number, I said, holy cow, when he got caught in that building, his mate was incubating four eggs. If we hadn't caught, uh, got him and released him quickly, she would have abandoned the nest and the nest would have So it was a very lucky thing. So although he's banded, we don't know where he's from. I'm Don Perlman, and I'm an attorney in Philadelphia, and I'm a day-to-day -day observer of the Falcons, the Peregrine Falcons. We, I'll tell you what happened. We uh, moved into one South Broad Street. Yeah. And we're on the 23rd floor, and it's a tremendous building with great management. Yeah. And they built a terrace 
on our on the roof right outside us. Yeah. And so we figured it'd be great to use a terrace for lunch and everything like that. But it turned out that the terrace was directly across from the nest box yeah. and directly across from the Ritz Hotel. But the falcons will be in the nest box when the chicks are born and when the chicks are hatched and then while they're developing before they start to fly. But they spend a lot of time on the Ritz Hotel directly across from us. Cool. And so we just started taking pictures of them and eventually it got to the point where it was so much fun that we were just doing it all the time. Yeah. And, I mean, I, would, I easily could have a day where I'd take 500 pictures because of, because of our proximity. You get to see it doing a little bit of everything. You get to yeah. see the, the eggs hatch. You get to see the chicks moving around. And I mean, you see day-to-day development. And if you take pictures every day, you can see every day they're a little bit bigger. And that's, if, if I didn't have the proximity where I could see, see them when they're sitting uh, uh, on a roost, watching all around, seeing when they take off after uh, after pigeons, seeing, seeing when they're mating. And, you yeah. know, I mean, that's what's interesting. Yeah. So it isn't the birds per se, it's the ability to watch them and sort of their, you know, just everyday activity. So right now, they're going out onto the ledge to check the nest box, and the adults are diving on them. So the biologist is out on art is out on the on the uh, ledge, scooping them out of the nest, and people are sort of ferrying them in in mesh bags as they come out, and looking at one of them perched up on the top of a column. I can't remember if it's ionic or Doric, ionic or what, but a column, and she's screaming at everybody, and the other one is taking turn, sort of flying out and then swooping back in. Tony, what you got there? American falcon chick. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so this is bird number one. And bird number one is 785 grams. 785. And at age 21, 21 days, I know that a bird of that weight is a female. And I knew she was a female just by looking at her in the nest box. Because besides being larger than the males in body size, females have legs and feet that in proportion to their body are larger than the males. So that means that when they grow up the rest of the way and they start flying, the females will be able to take larger prey than the males. The males, on the other hand, are more maneuverable more nimble in the air. So it's really sharing the duties of hunting. Very 
we were just talking about how badass these birds look. And right now we're looking out the window at, I don't know if it's a female? Yeah, I think, I believe so. It looks really burly. A burly looking falcon. But the things, like the head markings look kind of like war paint or something. And she's looking in here like she's going to kill everyone in here as soon as she gets a chance. Yeah, they have that counter shading with like the dark on top, light on the bottom. They really look like a like a fighter jet. I mean, and that's what they are. I mean, they they take prey in the air like a like an F-15 or something. No wonder they're called the F-42, the Raptor. She's mad. Understandably. She's every good reason to be mad. It's amazing how much these adult peregrine falcons weigh only about a pound. Only about two pounds, but they just look so much more heavy and powerful than that. Yeah. Cool. Tony's out there on the ledge with the box of peas. Relay him. I liked about it was just the the public nature of it i mean in in sort of turning it's funny i've been I, other times i've crossed um i was remember I was crossing to city hall for work um and was with people and i'm like i'm like like look right there is a peregrine falcon and like i don't think people when you're in a city people don't look up yeah when we go to the maniunk and sit at and Maniac is a neighborhood of Philadelphia. Man- Maniac, so there is a pair of peregrine falcons that have been nesting for four or five years in a church steeple in downtown Maniac. And we go in the first week in June, and when the young falcons have started to fly around, and we go to this the Couch Tomato <coughs> Pizzeria Beer Hall and go out on, the, on their sidewalk <coughs> tables, and set up our scopes and eat it's peregrine and pizza night <laughs> and we sit there with our scopes and the per- young peregrines are screaming around begging for food that you, for a burger you arrive there and that's all you hear is peregrines and you look up and there's three or four young peregrines flying around chasing their parents telling them to go out and get me more food and more pigeons so, more, we need more pigeons so you set up your scopes, and people start come over and say, well, what are you looking at? And it, these peregrines that are, that are screaming over your heads, that you, you almost have to talk loudly to speak over, <laughs> and you haven't noticed them. <laughs> you go, like, how could you not hear and see these birds that are flying over your heads? So... Everybody, so everybody, and there's a bar across the street. So everybody from that bar comes over, and watches, looks through our scopes, and we, and everybody that's on the sidewalk, the couch tomato sidewalk, comes and looks through our scopes, and we tell them about the peregrines, and it's a great evening. And the the waiters over at the restaurant, waiters at both places now know us, and they say, oh yeah, the peregrine guys are here again. And uh, so it's a great evening, and, and it's always a good show because the young falcons are flying around, and 
they're not good enough got not good enough to catch food on their for themselves yet so they're dependent on mom and dad if they're hungry and mom and dad perch and don't and stop the young will just dive at them and say go, go get me some food <laughs> they're um something i wanted to touch on you, you often for the or usually for the podcast we pick well, we we pick the synanthropic organism of the podcast, and so this is a term that refers to to animals or plants that have that sort of occupy our the habitats we create, live with us, and synanthropic. And so, for example, pigeons or whatever you call them, Eurasian rock doves, whatever, um, are a, are sort of a classic one where it's hard to quite figure out the difference between wild and domestic and feral like it's sort of all mm-hmm. one big muddled mass of a pigeon um whether that's in europe where they were might have been from or or in new york city or philadelphia um or any other city I, i've seen them in cities in in mexico and south america um and so it, i thought for a, sort of a point of discussion like now we've got peregrine falcons that that are coming back in pennsylvania but all over the East Coast. But so many of their sites are s- urban sites where yeah. they're, where, and this is something Art pointed out. We were interviewed when I was talking to him. And I didn't get it on tape, but that that their survival rates in cities are similar to non-urban areas, but they require more rescuing. Um, so the a fledgling might might sort of get hit by a car or something and need to get rescued by a volunteer or something like that. But so they sort of they, they fledge and survive with human assistance. They they nest um, maybe in places they find on their own, but also in sort of ledges and boxes that are kind of set up by humans. Yeah. Um, they eat uh, you know pigeons. They eat sort of a, a, a feral animal that lives with in association with us. Um, <coughs> what they sort of reach the sort of blurred status of wild and 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 sort of wild in our cities mm-hmm. um, and they're nesting on our structures and so I was going to nominate them for for maybe problematic a little bit but kind of the synanthropic organism of the episode. Well they're going to be one eventually. They're going to evolve into one because the, in the east the the east subspecies of the eastern subspecies of the peregrine falcon is is gone. The the um, the falcons out east now are there are I'm sure you could elaborate on this more, but they're they're a bunch of zoo and falconer birds and birds we got from the west and the Arctic all mixed together. So now they're like this. I think there are six or seven subspecies that have been. <coughs> so the gene pool of the falcons that have been introduced in east of the Mississippi are a mix of six or seven subspecies, mm. and. There were purists who said, oh, you shouldn't do that. And, and there were people who did not want peregrines to be reintroduced because they were this genetic hodgepodge, sort of a chimera of different subspecies. And I think that's silly. Um, <laughs> so what basically what we did was we effectively took a bunch of peregrine genes, mixed, put them together in a wearing blender, of captive breeding, let them go, and said, okay, some of these genes are going to work, and some of them won't, and let's see what comes out the other end. And so what survives 
will be, first of all, the genes that enable peregrines to somehow calm down enough to be bred in captivity. Sure. And then the genes that were enable them to fit with the prey species they were encountering. And peregrines are adaptable enough in terms of their the prey they can catch. That wasn't a big issue. But I think maybe there was a little genetic filter that went through that the peregrines that were calm enough to accept captivity and be bred in captivity, those those genes made it through. And now they'll spread out and they're the ones that will make it will make it and they're spreading out into cliffs, natural into more they're moving away from the some of them are moving away from the cities. Art uh, was saying that they're still primarily nesting in man made structures though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that will there's a cultural a strong cultural um, factor in you nest where you you look for a nest like you grew up in. And this is probably happening in ospreys too. Where ospreys right now, ninety-five percent of the ospreys nesting between New York and Boston are on man-made structures, and that fact and that percentage is pretty similar wherever you go. Um, so right now, when an osprey nests in a tree, it's sort of like a big event. It's like it's, <laughs> it's sort of a man bites dog story. When an osprey yeah. nests in a tree, oh my God, it's big news. So a lot of that, I think, is this sort of a cultural thing. If you you look for a nest site where you were raised, so to some extent, the peregrines are, are peregrines and ospreys are now very deeply entwined in with our species. Synanthropic organism. Um. So we're gonna listen now to um, Jesslina Surrey who I found just on on Twitter because she was commenting on uh, what kind of owl was this? An owl outside of her house in Cape Town um, that was calling at night. Um, was it the Cape Eagle Owl? I forget. But I, and I, I, I messaged her and I said, hey, can you record that? And then it was sort of like a by the way thing. I was like, by the way, what do you, what do, you do? Because she was posting other stuff that she was looking at or that she was talking she was posting other things that she was doing. Um, and then I found out she was a spotted eagle owl. She did a neighborhood spotted eagle owl. Um, and then she was, uh, she was doing research on, on something I'd never heard of before, a black sparrowhawk. Uh, and so we're going to stop and listen to her for a minute and then talk a little bit about that and the question of urban habitats as, because um, I know Rob has researched this or talked about it before last time we interviewed him, um, about urban habitats as sources versus sinks for, um, for urban birds of prey. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Jeslina Suri. I've just finished a master's degree in conservation biology at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. My master's research looked at black sparrowhawks in Cape Town, specifically looking at the impacts of urbanization on their health and diet. I've recently become really interested in urban ecology but I also happen to be a really avid bird watcher so over the last couple of years I've managed to kind of combine these interests in my research projects and I've been studying urban birds. So for my honours research I was looking at the impact of urban rivers on bird diversity and I really enjoyed that. So for my master's 
when we had to choose our projects, I knew that I wanted to do something similar. Um, and then I got really lucky when my supervisors approached me one day. I was just having a drink at the university pub and then they came and asked me if I wanted to do this project. Um, then they sent me a proposal and I basically thought it's raptors and it's urbanization, so definitely yes. The black sparrowhawk belongs to the genus Acepito. Acepitos are basically a group of raptors that consist of goshawks and other sparrowhawks and most of them are forest-dwelling raptors that prey on other birds with larger species generally eating things like pigeons, doves and game birds. In Africa, black sparrowhawks are the largest acipito. Um, their range was generally traditionally in the forested areas of East Africa and West Africa and then parts of Southern Africa but then recently, particularly in South Africa, their range has been expanding. Um, so while they used to only be in natural Afromontane or riparian forests, because humans have been planting pine and eucalyptus trees and other exotic trees everywhere, their range has now expanded also as a result of that. Um, so, for example, in Cape Town, they never actually used to occur here, but since around the 80s, I guess, their population has grown and now we have over 50 breeding pairs in the area as well as a number of non-breeding residents so their population has really grown. But now what's also happened as a result of their range expansion is that while they used to occur in natural areas they've now been exposed to these urban and human dominated landscapes. Now there are some benefits which come with this because they've now got these prime nesting habitats and pine and gum trees, and they've also got this abundant supply of food because there's pigeons and doves everywhere. But there, more, there may also be some negative consequences because urban areas can obviously come with their own threats, like, for example, pollution, disturbance, diseases. So the main idea behind this project was to look at the trade-offs that come with living in a city. Are they really just thriving here, or are they falling into this ecological trap? where you've got this habitat that looks really attractive, but it's actually having hidden consequences on their long-term health and survival. So, in terms of the design of the project, you can kind of think of there being two elements to it. The one part was the health and the other was the diet. And then we tested both of these things along an urban gradient. So to see if they differed along a gradient of increasing urban cover within the territory surrounding the nest. Last year we only sampled about 30 chicks, but with the previous years combined we actually had a sample of about 300 chicks, so we actually had quite a lot to work with. Um, and the reason that we looked at only chicks and not adults was partially because we didn't have enough samples from adults. They're much harder to capture, um, but also because at that stage of their life, the chick is confined to the nest, so it's more exposed to the conditions of the surrounding environment than an adult would be. For the diet stuff, we looked at two things. Firstly, we looked at the actual diet composition, and for that we had hundreds and hundreds of prey remain samples. Um, basically what this means is that black sparrowhawks often discard the feathers and the bones of their prey around the nest so you can kind of scan the area surrounding the nest and find a lot of bones 
and we were able to collect these. And then it's also, it's, I mean, it's quite straightforward um, identifying those feathers and bones down to species level. Um, so then we did that, and then we also looked at the actual abundance of prey to get an idea of prey availability in different habitats, and this was basically just doing bird counts in different areas around the nests. In terms of health, it was actually pretty amazing because for each of the indices that we looked at, we actually found no effect of increasing urbanization, so there were no health consequences to living in a more territory, urban territory, which was just amazing. Um, the only significant trend that we found was actually a positive one, whereby the infection by one of the parasites that we looked at actually decreased in urban areas. So we were really surprised by this. Um, you may suspect that the reason for this particular trend might be that um, this particular parasite is transmitted by black flies, which require running water as their breeding habitat. And it may be that the lack of this kind of aquatic habitat in urban areas may actually just uh, decrease the abundance of this parasite. And that might be something that black sparrowhawks are taking advantage of. In terms of the diet, we found that pigeons and doves made up 87% of their diet, and that's including five different species of pigeon and dove. Um, particularly their favorite one is the red-eyed dove, which makes up 42% of their diet. And then the rest of the things that they ate included things like helmeted guinea fowls, spotted thick knees, starlings, and even other raptors, which was also really cool to find. Um, the two raptors that we found were the African goshawk and a smaller species of sparrowhawk. Um, and then there were a few records of odd things like lapwings and ibises, people's chickens, and then the odd squirrel and mole rat too, which was actually unexpected because we thought that they were strictly bird-eating raptors. So we tried to see if the degree to which each of these species featured in their diet varied with increasing urbanization, and we expected maybe that pigeons would be more commonly eaten in more urban habitats or more urban territories, but we didn't find any of these trends. And then we also expected that maybe the variety of their diet would decrease in urban areas because in more urban areas where, say, pigeons once again are more abundant and there's a lower diversity of species, you would have a corresponding lower diversity of species in their diet. But, yeah, again, we didn't find any trends like that. Because in some cases, while there were species that were more common in urban habitats, overall, all the species were pretty well spread out across different habitat types. And this basically just shows that all habitats contain enough prey for black sparrowhawks, and yeah, this explains why we didn't see any trends in the diet composition. Then to kind of link the health and the diet aspects, we hypothesized that maybe the lack of any negative impacts on health is because there's prey available everywhere in urban areas, and clearly black sparrowhawks aren't under any kind of nutri nutritional stress. We also thought that maybe it's actually just the nature of the, uh, the city of Cape Town and the way that the urban gradient is spread out is not as straightforward as we kind of made out. It's not as simple as just measuring the gradient of urbanization. It may just be that 
the fact that Cape Town contains so much um, patchy, suitable habitat is enough to kind of mask the effect of that urban gradient, and that might be why we didn't find any of the significant trends that we expected in many cases. But yeah, putting that all together, we were actually really amazed to find that black sparrowhawks are so robust and that, I mean, clearly they're just thriving in the environment of Cape Town. And it may be that this has um, a lot of significant implications for other bird-eating raptors like the black sparrowhawk. So, for example, I mean, we've seen the same thing with peregrine falcons. It may just be that birds like these actually thrive in urban environments. And that's a pretty significant finding because ecologically raptors play a really important role. But also, I mean, there's this whole kind of train of thought that urban wildlife influences the way that people experience urban environments and I mean it's pretty cool having raptors like that in an urban area or well, maybe I'm biased but I think it's pretty cool having so many raptors in an urban area. In theory it's easy to tell apart a pigeon and dove bone by the size but sometimes it wasn't as easy as it seemed and I just didn't know what I was looking at and it wasn't very pleasant work to do either because I would just be sitting in front of smelly bones for hours and wondering what I was doing. But um, the crazy thing is that by the end of it I actually kind of ended up enjoying it. It kind of felt like detective work and it was exciting. Um, so now I actually find myself getting excited about bones and roadkill and trying to figure out what they are. So yeah, I guess I'll never ever be the same. But at least I've added to my skill set. Um, as for working in busy urban areas, it's definitely more exciting than people would think. For example, the nests that we were working at would often be at these parks where people would run and walk their dogs. So we often ended up attracting a lot of bystanders who were wondering what we were doing because they'd see us setting up around this guy who's climbing a huge pine tree and we had all this equipment with us. Um, yeah, there were a few occasions where it actually got a bit chaotic because occasionally when Mark, our climber, was up at the nest, the female sparrowhawk would get quite agitated once he got closer to the nest. And we had one occasion where the bird was quite aggressive and she kept making quite close flybys and passes at him. Um, meanwhile, we were all at the bottom trying to process the chicks and return them to the nest as quickly as possible. And there was a bit of a crowd gathering around us and they were all watching this bird passing at him and there were dogs around, and they were sniffing around and trying to steal my blood samples, so it occasionally got a bit stressful like that, but yeah, luckily that was as crazy as it got. Then also with the prey remains, I would spend quite a lot of time traveling around the city with a cooler box filled with samples, and occasionally people would look at me funny on the bus, so they would ask me what, what was in the box, and I would tell them there were bird bones in there, and I would get even weirder looks. So that was, that was a fun period of my life. And then I think the most common kind of issue that I faced was while doing the bird counts. Um, it's amazing how quickly people get suspicious when they see you loitering around with binoculars in the suburbs. So, yeah, the number of times that people approached me and asked me what I was doing there, I lost count. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of excitement in urban research. A lot of what you were saying reminded me, you know, these birds are 
doing quite well in the urban area because they're eating you know, the birds that are in the you know urban suburban areas and uh, also a lot of uh, walking around. the interactions with the residents seem to be kind of reminiscent of what you're talking about too people being a curiosity sure um, for, for some species of raptors it's very obvious that they're in your neighborhood um, the sparrowhawks over in South Africa they might be a little more secretive I think people would be surprised at how many Cooper's hawks are in the suburban area around Philadelphia. <clears throat> but oh, they're, they're, yeah, and they're like in backyards in West Philly. I see them in South Philly. I, I saw some hunting pigeons above the Sunoco on Walnut Street in, in, in West Philly. Yeah. So, so, so some species are, are pretty sneaky and cryptic, and others, like the owls, are very obvious. But it, that there's a clear theme here, that, and this is true not only of raptors, but coyotes are invite, invading suburbia and crows 50 years ago you couldn't find a crow in in a suburban habitat because really? they, they were all shot and and they have we've stopped shooting crows so they've they're smart enough to figure that out and so they're now everywhere uh, so there's a lot of wildlife that has adapted to in, and invaded the suburban habitats and one of the questions that that raises is are these suburban habitats productive areas for the wildlife that's moving into them so in conservation biology there's a bit of jargon where we talk about source and sink populations we we talk about ecological traps and i think the the um the gal there was who was talking about the sparrowhawks mentioned ecological traps. So some habitats are really good and, and a species can, can move into it and they can produce a lot of young and they're producing more young than enough young to take care of or compensate for the adult mortality um, to, the, to the extent that they're actually exporting offspring. Offspring are looking for places to breed, but there aren't any available, so they're moving out to other patches of habitat. So that's a population that a conservation biologist would call a source. Um, the owl may be down there with all of that chipping that's going on there. Maybe one of our screech owls is, is down there. Freaking out the local songbirds. Right. So, um, so some populations, if they're really productive, and they're, they're pumping out enough young that they can populate s nearby areas are what we call a source population. Then there are situations where, a, where a species, individuals of a species move into a habitat that looks good to them, but there's something wrong with it that they can't tell. For neotropical migrants, it could be a small patch of forest that's so small that the cowbirds are everywhere, and it, it, they sort of check off all of their little boxes in their real estate searching list <laughs> and they say this looks perfect for me but what they don't know is that they're so close to a forest edge that every time they build a nest it's going to be full of cowbird eggs so they're not raising any young. It might be a situation where there are so many feral cats that the habitat looks good, but they're getting wiped out by the feral cats. It might be a situation where there's a pesticide or some pollutant in that patch of woods, 
or in the case of my barred owls, it may be a patch of forest that is not very good, but it's the best they can do, so they're going to nest there anyway, and they wind up not being very productive. So they can't produce enough young to fill in, compensate for the adults that are dying off every year through natural mortality. So that situation is what we call a sink. So birds are nesting there. So you found the suburbs of in North Carolina to be a, a sink for... No, it was a source. Oh, it was a source. Okay. So that was one of the questions. When we, when we started that project with barn owls, we wondered, is this a source or a sink? Because the reason we knew there were so many barred owls was one, we heard them in our neighborhoods, but but the barred owls were coming in, a lot of barred owls were coming into the raptor, the Carolina Raptor Center. And most of them were car accident, car collisions. So it might have been the situation where the owls were um, not, were reproducing a lot of young, but not enough of them were surviving to re replace the adults. Well, it turned out that the suburb, suburban habitat for barred owls was very productive and there is a very high mortality rate, but there are enough young produced that, that there's never a habitat vacancy. Jess had I'd asked her about the source sink question and she had mentioned that it's, it's hard to call it Cape Town anything but a sink just because it's a new population that has moved into the city. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but it's a, a question that remains to be seen over time whether it's an owl down there. Yeah. So we're, we're, what, we're, what we're noticing is that we're hearing a whole lot of songbird. Um, the local robins are pissed off. <laughs> at something. <clears throat> so now Tony's stalking it with the binoculars. And it's it's an it's an owl. Where's it likely to perch? In that brush across the creek, probably. If you're, I mean, you're listening to this podcast, we're going to bet that you love nature, you love wildlife, you're in a city, and you probably have a smartphone that you can use to tape something. Um, so next time you see something, it, it will say something cool, but something cool that, like, even if it's routine, something cool. Um, if it's the, the fox squirrel in Indianapolis near where you are, if it's the invasive fox squirrel in Los Angeles, um, if it is the... Um, you're Asian equal owl that nest in your football stadium that attacks the players on the field. That would be awesome. But look it up on YouTube. It's awesome. If it's a local powerful owl that's picking off the possums in your Australian neighborhood, um, any of those things, drop us an audio snippet, or if you're, you want to give us a phone call, you can call us in the United States. It's 267-603-3219. Wildlife bling. <laughs> 267-603-3219 uh, or record it on your phone and, and pop it over to us. Um, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com um, or you can hit us up on Twitter at herbwildlifecast or find us on Facebook um, and let us know what you're checking out. Um, and I'm not sure what we're going to do next week. We're probably going to do something about cemeteries. We're going to be doing a recording at the Woodland Cemetery, a great urban Philadelphian cemetery. Um, talk about some of their stuff and also about cemetery stuff around the world actually um, and again uh, if you're in Philadelphia and you want to join me and Tony on a bicycle ride um, there's going to be a fee uh, it's $10 if you're already part of Hidden City um, 15 bucks for general public 
um, but it's sponsored by the magazine Spoke and the Hidden City Project, uh, and the, the, the series called Bike Exploration. Um, Tony and I, along with our buddy Robin, um, we're going to be checking out the Taconi Creek watershed um, from the park itself down to um, uh, some interesting, very urban, uh, post urban industrial and post industrial stuff. Um, all the way down to the Delaware River to look at some ospreys and whatnot along the, the river. Um, you can join us and, and get a nice uh, in-person urban wildlife cast experience. Indeed. All right. We want to thank Rob for, for hosting us on his, on his patio. <laughs> it was a pleasure. And, and we're, we're all sort of peering around trying to find this owl that's freaking out all the birds. Um, and, we uh, know it's there. <laughs> Hey, podcast listeners, here is a recording from Sean Hayes in Dallas, Texas. I'm out herping in southeast Dallas in the Trinity River bottomlands and uh, just off of Loop 12. And the river is recently flooded, so that's pushed a lot of the snakes and other animals really up against the walking paths, which are on higher ground. So I was... Uh, walking through tall grass on the edge of the flooded deciduous woods and just came across this beautiful adult copperhead just coiled up in the grass which of course requires careful watching and uh, it is a southern copperhead it has the hourglass pattern a very beautiful um, kind of a normal pattern and uh, it's motionless even though I'm standing here right over it coiled up and uh, just trying to stay dry. So I've seen several water snakes that darted into the water uh, just as quickly as they felt me approaching. So this is the first one I've been able to corner, so to say. And uh, what I'm going to do is just take a few photos and then we'll move on and see what else we can find as we walk along the edge of the flooded river. the sound of the, I believe, the eastern narrowmouth toad. I'm not as good with frogs as I am with snakes, but um, finding the narrowmouths every once in a while. Um, I usually find them in dry areas, but curiously they do, they can be found here near the Trinity River. So uh, right now I'm, I'm on top of a very steep bank going down to really the woods, which have become a swamp because of the river that flooded them. <laughs> I just broke a branch on my way down. <laughs> um, and this is the kind of habitat that broad-banded water snakes like to live in. They're not a common water snake in north-central Texas in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but uh, the corridor along the Trinity River and some of the swampier areas, you will find them, uh, including all the way up to Louisville. So, that's kind of my target species for now because I haven't found very many of them and uh, have not seen one confirmed yet. It could have been any number of the water snakes that slipped in the water before I had a chance to identify them. Okay, now I'm looking at a juvenile five-line skink. It could be a broadheaded. I'm, I can't confirm. And it's sunning on a tree. 
with just a little bit of sunlight coming through the trees uh, on top of this branch that juts straight out at, at a low height from the base of the tree. And uh, yeah, he sees me now. He's going to scurry off. <laughs> it's the most common large skink in this area. That's the sound of Blanchard's cricket frog. As we get closer to evening, the uh, frogs are really coming to life out here. The great horned owls, the people ask me what great horned owls eat, I say whatever they want to. And when people ask you where they nest, I say wherever they want to, because there's nothing bigger and fatter than a great horned owl. Except the Eurasian eagle owl. <laughs> which, <laughs> which won't happen now. <laughs> which we won't see here, but it, that is, the Eurasian eagle owl is, is a great horned owl on steroids. and.